good morning, Northgate. It's wonderful to be back with you again. For those who don't know me, or I've been gone a long time, those who don't remember me, uh, I am the other Pastor Mark, and it's, uh, it's good to be back. We had a few weeks of holidays, some rest, some restoration. Uh, we had a just, yeah, it was just really a wonderful time away on vacation with the family. We had a good time. Uh, one of the things I always want to try to do on my summer vacation is kind of think about what I want to preach about come the fall. And on that topic, the one thing I sort of, I just kind of took hold of me uh, about what I should stop speak on was the book we're going to start studying this morning, the book of First Thessalonians. Uh, so if you join me in turning to First Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, uh, we think of this as one of the Pauline Apostles. Uh, even though there's three, you know, or two other co-authors named uh, in this book, uh, it would have really have been the Apostle Paul himself who, who took the lead in writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica. And it kind of got me thinking um, that receiving letters is, is actually a really precious thing. I remember being a kid uh, you know, I didn't get bills or anything in the mail, so mail was very precious to me. And you know, often it was from my grandma, and it was like to Master Mark Houghton was written on the end. It's like, oh, I felt so important. I had no idea what it meant. But you know, it's, it, letters are letters are such precious things, and I think that's especially true now uh, when it's been pointed out. You know, that the art of writing handwritten letters is sort of dying out. Uh, you know, we just we don't do it anymore. We have email now. It's you know, we can instantly send letters that are delivered into the mailbox. And then, you know, we have texting, which is even faster. Instead of having to wait hours for someone to check their email, now they expect answers in minutes. And then we, I mean, we even got Twitter, where now everything worth saying can be said in 120 characters or less. And although they, you know, increased it to a very generous 280 characters. Um, yeah, pastors can't sneeze without 280 characters. We, we're long-winded, but... It, just, it seems like the way that we're going in society, pretty soon communication between people will be just nothing but a series of emojis, you know, and a hashtag. That's, uh, yeah, but, so maybe it's the old grump in me, maybe it's sort of just me showing my age, but I still think there's something very precious, something wonderful, something valuable in receiving a personal and thoughtful handwritten letter, especially when it comes from someone who just loves you. And the church in Thessalonica must have felt very much the same way because this church decided to keep this letter that Paul wrote to them as something precious, as, as something personal, as something that they just, they treasured. You know, this letter wasn't thrown into the garbage bin along with the flyers or, you know, the coupons that came in the mail with them. Uh, this was something the people wanted to hang on to. And because they hung on to it, we're still reading this letter here, like something like 2,000 years later. And I think the one thing that kind of sets this letter apart, even from some of the other letters that Paul wrote to churches, I think it's just how heartfelt the letter of 1 Thessalonians really is. Uh, Chuck Swindoll points out that we could almost categorize this letter as being parental in nature. It feels like a heart-to-heart -heart talk between a spiritual father as he talks to his children. And, you know, even though we think of you know, sometimes we think about Paul, he's this great theologian, he's this mighty missionary, he's this prolific writer, he's this powerful apostle, but I think First Thessalonians really reveals to us his heart as a concerned parent taking joy in his spiritual children's growth, just remembering with fondness the time that they spent together, and he just takes comfort 
in, in knowing that they have learned to make their faith their own. And yet for all of that, this letter does address a few important issues. Uh, Paul was facing some personal attacks from his enemies, so he's writing to them to sort of uh, just remind them of his character, uh, of their time, you know, that he was on display when they were together. Uh, he also writes to correct some mis- misunderstanding or confusion that arose in their theology, especially around the return of Jesus. But again, mostly this letter is really just an encouragement to this young church to just to keep keeping on in their faith. And again, my encouragement to you uh, is that over the next few months as we go through this letter, uh, in your own time, just try to be reading through this letter, this book of the Bible, a couple of times a month, maybe once every two weeks. It's not a long letter. It'll take you about 20 minutes to, to get through all of it. But just be reading this book as we go through it in your own time. Get familiar with, uh, with what Paul is saying as you go through it. And it'll just... It'll help you get so much more out of it, you know, as we work our way through. And it may just become one of your favorites. It's, a, it's an amazing letter. So let's uh, read the introduction of this book together as we also are introducing ourselves this morning to the book of 1 Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 3 this morning. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I just again... Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be with us in our time together. Uh, Lord, as we open up the word, uh, Lord, as I, as I proclaim these words to the people, I pray that you uh, would be our true teacher this morning. I uh, pray that, Lord, you would be the one who is seen. I uh, pray that it would be your Holy Spirit who is the, uh, the proclaimer of truth to our hearts this morning. Pray that you would give us me strength to, 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 to say it. Pray that you'd give our hearts preparedness to hear it. And that, Lord, we just welcome you into all that we do here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin our time this morning, uh, I am going to take you on a bit of a journey uh, back in time. So you can, kinda, you can think of this as an all-expense-paid, 100% imaginary trip to the city of Thessalonica. Uh, and this would have been right around sort of the year 50 AD. Uh, and I have a map, if you, you want to sort of uh, have some context there, there's the map up on screen behind me of where Thessalonica was located. So, uh, you know, on this side, I get to use a laser pointer, very excited. Um, this, is, this is the boot of Italy, so Italy runs up here. Uh, over here is uh, Asia Minor in Bible times, which is today Turkey. Uh, so Ephesus would have been a port city right around there. Uh, and then this is Greece, uh, modern-day Greece still. That's where Greece is located. Up here is Macedonia, uh, which would have been, that's the heart of Alexander the Great. Uh, you know, when he, his empire expanded into the whole world, uh, Macedonia was, was where he was born and raised and where the center of his power was. Um, yeah, and Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonica is right there. It's kind of, honestly, it's kind of at the crossroads of all of that stuff that was happening in the world around that time. And it was a city that was founded about 400 years 
uh, before Paul wrote this letter uh, to the church in that town. And again, 400 years before that was, was right around the time of Alexander the Great's sort of rise to power. So Thessalonica as a new city would have really been sort of at the heart of that empire. Uh, you know, it would have been sort of part of the, what would have been seen as the center of the world at that time. And you know, even after Alexander the Great's death, you know, when the Roman Empire eventually came to power, Thessalonica was still sort of very much one of those cities that was just in the right place at the right time. Because it was located along one of the biggest trade routes in the Roman Empire at that time. The highway, see, it even ran through sort of the middle of town. Uh, so if goods or even people were passing through the Roman Empire by land, and they were going from east to west or west to east, there was a good chance that they would pass through this city. And it was also a port city. Uh, so they saw trade from all over the empire. So that also helped them serve as a, as a you know, a hub of commerce. Uh, and they're also very strategically located. So, you know, it was very militarily important. Uh, and it was that for, way for a long time. Uh, even during the Byzantine, uh, Byzantine Empire, which is many hundred years later, after Paul uh, wrote this letter, Thessalonica was still considered the second largest and second wealthiest city in the empire. So Thessalonica was this it was a large city. It was a wealthy city. It was a politically and strategically important kind of world-class city. And that kind of made me wonder, well, if that's the case, why haven't we heard sort of more about it? And the answer I kind of came up with this week is that it's because Thessalonica was a city that was basically second best at everything. Uh, it was a large city. Estimates put it at 200,000 people at that time, but it just wasn't the largest of cities. It wasn't like on the level of a Rome or something like that. And it was a wealthy city, but it just wasn't quite as wealthy as a place like Corinth that was known for that. And it was a politically important city, but it just, again, wasn't quite as important as a place like Ephesus that sort of served as the eastern capital of the empire. As a city, Thessalonica was sort of constantly the bridesmaid and never the bride. It was sort of always the runner-up. It was never the, the champion. Even when it comes to its name. Uh, you know, Alexandria in Egypt was named after Alexander the Great himself. Uh, Philippi, which is the city right next to Thessalonica, it was named after Alexander the Great's father, who was a king himself. But Thessalonica was named after Alexander the Great's half-sister, uh, who just sort of became mostly irrelevant. And even today, this city still exists. It's, it's in Greece. It's known as Salonika. And it's still considered the second biggest city in Greece and widely considered the second most important city after Athens. And sec, I mean, second, second place is pretty impressive, actually. I mean, it's, it's nothing to sneeze at. But I don't know if all of this sort of second place-ness gave the city kind of an inferiority complex. But I think one thing that we do know for sure is that the second place city really gave rise to what turned out to be a first-class church. And this church that, that arose in Thessalonica, that was founded there, it did that even with what I would call probably the most unusual of beginnings. Some very difficult beginnings, actually. 
And we actually read about the founding of this church in the book of Acts, in chapter 17. If you want to open up there, uh, you can join me in reading it, or it'll be on the screen. But it happened during Paul. So Paul and his team were on what we typically call their second missionary journey. Uh, so they're traveling around, they're preaching the gospel, they're, they're planting, you know, going from place to place, city to city, planting churches in the places where they went. And they just left uh, Philippi, which was on the map next door. Uh, if you know that story, there was, you know, they were arrested and they were thrown in jail and there's an earthquake and they escape and the, the prison guard and his whole family is saved. But then the next morning, the town council shows up and asks them politely to get out of town. Like, we don't want to see you anymore. So after Philippi, they go straight to Thessalonica. Um, and if you want to follow along, this is the account of Paul's visit. Uh, according to the book of Acts. Acts 17, beginning in verse 1, where it says, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So Paul sees this amazing kind of response to his preaching of the gospel in this city. There, there's, there's a revival and we're told a great many believed, and, you know, especially among the Greeks. And the Bible doesn't use that term great, a great many, without it being a great many. And yet as much as this gospel in Thessalonica finds good soil in the hearts of the people, we also see that it encountered some of the old enemies of the gospel as well. Because our story continues in Acts 17, beginning in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set, uh, and set the city in an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, I don't want you to miss something in that account. Because that account tells us that Paul spent only three weeks in this city before he was forced to flee. We're told he spoke in the synagogue for just three Sabbaths. That's it. Now, can you imagine, just for a minute, trying to plant a church in a new city, a church that will grow, a church that will prosper, a church that's going to be reaching out to others, and yet having to do that all in about 21 days? It's crazy. I mean, today we generally spend years planning uh, to plant a church somewhere before we even take, take a step to do it. It takes a long time to plant a church. But Paul only had three weeks. So Paul, when he was forced out, he must have been so worried 
for that church, worried that it was all going to fall apart in this absence, that the church in Thessalonica is going to, that it's going to crumble without leadership, that persecution is going to stamp out any spark of faith that was left among those who believed. So what happens is that Paul, he moves on, he goes to Berea, and then he moves to Athens, and then eventually to, to the city of Corinth, where he spends about two years. Um, what Paul does is he waits a little while after he's been forced out of the city, and you know, sort of for the heat to die down back in Thessalonica. And then he sends, when he thinks it's safe, he sends Timothy back to that church. He's kind of undercover because Paul just wants to know, how is this church doing? And when Timothy comes back to Paul, he has the most remarkable report because the church in Thessalonica, it hasn't just survived. The church is flourishing. The gospel is being spread from Thessalonica faster than most people can travel. This church that had sort of every reason to sort of stay immature, every reason to fall apart, even to go astray. And yet this church surprises everybody by staying true to what Paul had taught them. So Paul, he's both, he's both encouraged and maybe even a little bit in shock by this news. So he sits down and he writes the church this letter that we have before us. And that means this actually may be the oldest book in the New Testament. This may be the first thing we have on record that Paul ever wrote. But that kind of leads to the big question, at least to me, that this passage raises. And that's simply, how did this church do it? I mean, I'm, I'm very glad that they did do it, but how after only three weeks, how did they become such a successful and growing church? I mean, what did, what did Paul say to them? I mean, what did he teach them? And, and can you bottle that? Because I know of churches that have, you know, been around for decades, and if their pastor left tomorrow, they would be completely lost and fall apart. What did this church have that allowed them to thrive and to grow? What foundation was, were they given that allowed them to stand? Well, we're going to be unpacking that in the weeks ahead as we work through this letter, but I think Paul gives us actually a very important clues about exactly what was going on in this church, even in these opening verses of this letter. And we're going to look at them again, uh, where we 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where it says, Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. That's kind of a standard sort of introduction to any letter that was sent at that time, so we're not going to go into too much there. But then Paul goes on to verse 2, and he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to stop there because I'm going to ask you, did you catch the three things that Paul says was happening in this church? If you look again at verse 3, Paul mentions the work of their faith, the labor of their love, and the steadfastness of their hope. What this church had was faith, hope, and love. And you know, there's pe people who call those three things sort of the cardinal virtues of the Christian faith. Uh, of course, it's not the only time those three things are mentioned together in the, in the Bible. Most famously, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, And now these three things remain faith, hope, and love. So Paul may not have been in Thessalonica very long. 
but he's there long enough to teach that church these three essential things about being a Christian. I know the lesson for us here today is that if we want to be a church that's growing, if we want to be a church that is making a difference in our world around us, if we want to be a church that's sharing the gospel, if we want to be a church that is setting an example for others, if we want to be the kind of church God wants us to be, we too need to be a church of faith and of hope and of love. So let's talk a little bit about each of these things, three things. Because first, Paul talks about the work of their faith. And faith is an amazing thing. Uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Oswald Chambers uh, puts it like this. He says, faith is the deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. And if I were to put that in my own words, I would say simply, faith means believing and trusting in God, in everything. And really, faith, trusting God, that's, that is where Christianity begins. Christianity is not about, you know, living trusting in ourselves, or our bank accounts, or our good health, or our jobs, or our family, or our friends, or our governments, or anything else. It's living with our trust first and foremost in God. Trusting in His character. Trusting in his goodness, trusting in his word, trusting in salvation through his son. And you know, it would be hard to sort of, as a Christian, understate the importance of faith in our lives as believers. 2 Corinthians 5 7 says, We live by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Matthew 21 tells us that faith can move mountains. Luke 17 tells us the faith the size of a mustard seed can do the impossible. The book of James tells us that we are to pray by faith. I mean, faith is essential to our lives as believers. Faith is the foundation of our lives in Christ. And Paul tells us to make that faith our work. He talks about the work of faith in this church. And you know, I'm always hesitant to put the word work and the word faith in the same sentence because a lot of times it can confuse people faith and works and how they work and you know the book of James rightly points out that faith without works is dead but Paul is clear that faith stands alone from our works he says in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says for by grace you have been saved through faith this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one can boast I think it was John Calvin that said it really well. He said, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is not alone. The faith of these believers, it it led them to live lives that had an impact, lives that were different. Their faith led them to do good works all around them. But it's also interesting that the word that Paul uses, chooses to use in this verse for, for work, the work of faith, can also actually be translated as the word occupation or a trade, or a career, or even better, translate, it's a vocation. And I actually really like that, because Paul may be telling this church that that instead of doing works of faith, he's actually telling that their faith is, as a Christian, faith is your job description. Living by faith is what we are called to do. It's our full-time job as believers. Our life's calling as Christians is to live by faith. 
That's the work of faith. And that's what this church had. And then Paul talks about their labor of love. And again, just like faith, we know that love is something that is essential uh, to our lives as Christians. You know, Jesus himself, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? His answer was love. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then he said, love others as you would love yourselves. Jesus even tells his disciples that their love for one another, that's going to be the testimony that you're going to be giving to the world. That's how people are going to know that you're my disciples, will be known by your love for one another. Loving each other. And of course, that's also where this message gets difficult because loving people is not always easy. Paul even, I think, comments on that truth in our verse as he calls it a labor of love. And the word for labor that Paul uses in this verse, it carries with it the implication actually of pain, of toil, hard work, sacrifice. It's even word used for like the beating of your breast. I gotta love these people. Like, so today when we talk about a labor of love, you know, we, we think of something that we love to do, something that brings us joy. Oh, it was a labor of love. It was so easy. It was just like, yeah. No. <laughs> when Paul talks about the labor of love, he's telling us, you know what? You love each other, but that love can be so hard. Christian love isn't always easy, and it isn't natural, and it's not even at times fun. Because the call to love each other is not just a call to pretend to be nice to people, because that's easy. The real test of love, the real labor of love, is not loving those who are easy to love, but those who are hard to love, and loving them in a way that reflects the love of God. There's a story about uh, Evangeline Booth, who was the daughter of the founder of the Salvation Army. It said one day she sat in a squalid slum cleaning the oozing sores of a drunk woman in an alley. And a friend looked down, of hers looked down at her and the work she was doing and she said, you know, I would not do that for a million dollars. Evangeline Booth simply replied, neither would I. So why did she do it? Because love was her motivation. Love that's not always easy. Love that has a cost but it's love that makes a difference. And there are people in our lives right now who need a touch like that. People who need healing and restoration. People that need a hand or a kind word or a friendly face. People who need to hear about forgiveness. There are people in our lives that need to be loved. And the church in Thessalonica loved people like that. Loved people even when it hurt. They understood what it meant to labor in love for others. Which brings us actually to the third thing this church had, and that was they had a steadfastness of hope. That's a great word, steadfastness. And you know, the church needed that hope because, as we've heard, Thessalonica probably was a tough place to be a Christian. We already heard the Jews in that city, they'd run Paul and his team out of town and led a riot against them. I mean, I can't imagine that that mob was, would be friendly, you know, neighbors to those Christians who still remain there. But even among the Gentiles, there was something called, in that time, emperor worship. That, that saw Caesar, the emperor, as, as being a god among men. And that may also be why, the, you know, in Acts 17, we see the charges that are leveled against the church as, as they were setting up another king and that Jesus was being a rival to Caesar. It upset them very much. 
So it just, it seemed that there was persecution for this church on all sides, from the Jews, from the Gentiles, everywhere they turned. It was a tough place to be a believer. And because of that and all they had to endure, what this church needed was hope to keep them going. And I can tell you, too often in our world today, there is a severe shortage of hope in the lives of the people around us. You know, there's people who are living their lives one day after another who think nothing's ever going to change. There's nothing more, nothing to look forward to, nothing is ever going to be different. There's nothing that's even sort of to look forward to. They live their life without any kind of real meaning, any kind of purpose. It's just more of the same. You know, they go to work, they pay their bills all week, and they start it up and do it all again the next Monday, and they repeat that until they die, thinking that that's all that life has to offer them, that that's all that there is. And there's fewer and fewer people who have any belief in anything beyond this life and the daily grind. But you know, even for people who, who do have hope for beyond this world, their hope is often weak. In the book, The Day America Told the Truth, people were asked the question, why do you think you will get to heaven? 60% said, well, basically I think I'm a pretty good person. 15% said, well, I think I've done the best that I can. 10% said, well, I believe in God. 8% say, because I go to church. 2% said, I, well, they are honest, I don't know. And unfortunately for all those people, they're 100% wrong. But as believers, we know where our hope is found. Because our hope is found in Christ. It's just as the old song goes, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the basis for our hope. And it's a hope that cannot be shaken once you've taken hold of it. I love the words of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. to Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade that is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed. And let me tell you, when life gets tough, on those days when the road feels long, when the way ahead seems dark, it is our hope in Christ that gets us through. It's our hope that lets us keep going. It's our hope that allows us to stand. And it is that hope that Paul has pointed this church to. And it's interesting because this hope is not just found in the resurrection of Jesus or in the eternal life that is waiting for us. It's interesting in Thessalonians that Paul specifically also roots this hope that we have in the return of Jesus Christ. Because the return of Jesus Christ is a major theme in the book of 1 Thessalonians. In fact, it's pointed out every chapter of 1 Thessalonians contains some aspect of the hope of the second coming of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10, tells us to wait for his Son from heaven, who he is raised from the dead, Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2, verse 19, we're told, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? 
Chapter 3, verse 13 says that, so he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Chapter 4, which is one of my favorites, almost all of it's about this, but chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left into the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And chapter 5, verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, the return of Jesus... It was not something that was sort of merely a passing interest for this church. The return of Jesus was something that was interwoven into how they lived their lives every day. This church in Thessalonica, they lived with that hope of Jesus' return before them every single day. They lived keeping one eye in the sky because they knew that today may be the day that they saw the Lord in the air. They lived with that knowledge that their hope was real, and that Jesus was coming back. And it was a hope that helped sustain them. You know, when troubles came, when trials appeared, when persecution happened, their hope gave them the strength to go on. Because they were, knew they were living for more than just the here and now. They were living for eternity. And looking forward to the day, they would see the Lord face to face. And we need that kind of predominance of hope in our lives too. Did you know, I found this out this week, I was a little shocked. Did you know in the New Testament that one in 30 verses actually speaks about the return of Jesus? That's a lot of verses. And what that leads me to believe is that God wants us as Christians to be living with this hope before us. And I honestly think as a church today, we don't spend enough time reflecting on that. We don't spend enough time thinking and living in the hope of the return of our Lord. We don't spend enough time remembering our hope that Jesus is coming back. And sure, maybe that thought is in there somewhere. I mean, we know it, but you know, it's somewhere at the back of our minds. But honestly, usually we only kind of break that out at funerals. But we need to be living and longing for the Lord's return. We need to be living with steadfastness of hope of the return of Christ in our lives. And that, in a nutshell, is kind of the introduction to the Thessalonian church. They lived by faith. You know, they made trusting God their life's occupation. And they showed love to others, even when that love hurt and was a toil. And they held on to their hope in Christ, in his resurrection and his return. And that helped sustain them when times got tough. And you know, with those three things firmly in place, it should be no surprise that this church was in a place to grow and flourish. 
So as we close this morning, the only application I really have for you is this. Just as believers that we might live the same way. That we might every day be holding on to faith and hope and love. Because, you know, that's who we are in Christ. That is how we should be living because genuine faith and hope and love make such a difference in how we live. I mean, just ask yourselves, what anxieties would fade away? What worries would dissipate? What perspective would be gained? What strength would be available to you in your life if we lived with faith in God and love for one another and hope firmly established in Jesus Christ in our lives every day? And we're going to learn more about that in the weeks ahead as we dig deeper into this letter. But just know that for today, a life of faith and hope and love, it's radical. And it's transformational. But best of all, it is available to each and every one of us. And it's available to our church. So let's live it out because that is what faith and hope and love call us to do. Let's pray. Father God, what an amazing thing is faith and hope and love. And Lord, they are such, they're such simple words, but they make such a profound difference in our lives as believers. And I pray that, Lord, we truly would be rooted and established in faith, hope, and love when it comes to our relationship with you that those things would change how we live, that they would change how we see the world, that they would, in fact, be changing us, transforming us, being part of being made a new creation in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would hold on to that, that, that Lord, we wouldn't want run past, you know, in theology to look at all those big 13-letter words, but Lord, we would cherish those simple aspects of our faith faith, hope, and love, and that we would live in them and that we would celebrate them. And that, Lord, simply they would be part of our lives and that they would be part of our church and that they would just do their transformational work in all of us, having all of these things rooted in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.